Hello everybody, I'm David Schuster and welcome to the conversation. There's that old saying that money cannot buy you happiness. And we've certainly been reminded that it cannot always necessarily buy you happiness and marriage. Bill and Melinda Gates are together worth more than $130 billion. They've announced that they're getting divorced. And this has not been a great time for Bill Gates certainly because there's been a torrent of stories about his alleged philandering and wandering eye. Here to talk about all of this in our celebrity culture is Tim Schwab. He's a freelance journalist whose most recent article for The Nation is Fall of the House of Gates. Tim has investigated the Gates Foundation for years. Tim, thanks for joining us. First of all, were you surprised when you heard the news about Bill and Melinda Gates? Yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, I've been covering the Gates Foundation really closely since 2019. And you set up a Google alert at the time, a Google News alert. And every day you get dozens of the same story over and over again for more than a year, which is about the Gates Foundation giving away millions of dollars, saving millions of lives. And suddenly now here we are in the news cycle, the news, the media narrative is shifting completely under the feet of the Gates Foundation. And it's good in a lot of ways because suddenly we're putting a critical eye on Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, which has really been absent for, for most of the last decade, really. And that critical eye includes, um, I mean, there was this fawning coverage of him even during the pandemic in which a lot of people said, "Oh, Bill Gates predicted the pandemic. And you pointed out that, well, even if he said that the pandemic might be coming, he didn't really do much with this $50 billion foundation to see the world for the coming pandemic, right? Right, the news media has always loved Bill Gates for over the last decade as the as our philanthropist in chief, but it really took on a new level of hagiography during the pandemic, with things like him predicting the pandemic, that he's pouring all of his money into solving the pandemic, that he's stepping in where governments have failed. So yeah, the foundation has given to date something like one point seven five billion dollars to the COVID response, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you put that next to the Gates wealth, which is $130 billion they have in their private uh, their private wealth, and then $50 billion of the foundation is about 1% of their wealth. So of all the things that the money that they could be putting in, it, it doesn't sound like a particularly generous amount. The story I think we could be telling is, you know, are they miserly? Why haven't they done more? Uh, and maybe now we're at a point where we can open up that conversation and look at the Gates Foundation with a clear eye. Do you think that the reason we didn't have that conversation is, look, there exists this sort of celebrity culture, this total worshiping of people who are famous, who have a lot of money. And as a result, it just sold more magazines and got more eyeballs on television. If you did positive stories about Bill Gates, then somehow poo-pooed his wealth and looked at the unseemly side of, of his background. Absolutely, I think we do live in a culture that in some fundamental level really worships wealth. And I think we are, we do have this kind of hardwired search for heroes. And you know, for the longest time, I think Bill and Melinda Gates checked both those boxes. These were people who made a lot of money, but then who by all media accounts were giving all that money away. So they really fit the media narrative so perfectly in a way that it just proved irresistible for the news media. But it also doesn't hurt that the Gates Foundation has put hundreds of millions of dollars into journalism, you know, funding news outlets, funding journalism conferences, so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot of different things happening, a lot of reasons why we haven't had more of a critical eye over the years. And speaking of the Gates Foundation, I mean, it's an undemocratic institution. It's essentially largely unaccountable. Um, did that go unnoticed for, for too long? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a sense that um, you know, there's a rich guy who's giving all of his money away. How could you look askance at that? How could you possibly criticize that? What could possibly be wrong with that? But when you take a step back and you understand that through philanthropy, he's converting his enormous wealth into political power. And at the Gates Foundation, though it's easy to look at it as a charity, it's probably better understood as a political organization. One that makes philanthropic donations in a way that puts the Gates Foundation at the center of public policy making. And you've seen the really outsized influence that Gates has developed around US education, around global health, around the pandemic response. You can just kind of go down the list where Gates has asserted itself through its financial giving. If it is looked at as a political institution, most political entities have an agenda, whether it's you know a social safety net, say on the Democratic side, or more power towards capitalists on the Republican side, less government. What would be the agenda if you're looking at this through the eyes of politics of the Gates Foundation? Well, I mean, in some sense, you know, the Gates Foundation aligns kind of with the Democratic agenda, and you see when you have a Democratic president, for example, you'll see a revolving door. Um, with uh, uh, the Biden administration now, with the Obama administration before. Um, but in some general sense, their agenda is, I mean, you think about Bill Gates and his, you know, his love of technology. So he wants to find technological solutions for all of the world's problems. Um, you think about Microsoft again, and you think about patents and intellectual property, which has been a, a very big feature of Bill Gates' work in the pandemic response, for example. But you know, the other thing to consider is that you know Bill Gates' worldview really is that um, you know he should be in charge, um, and that tracks all the way back to Microsoft, with um, you know which is one of history's most storied monopolies. And that same animus towards monopoly, towards power, towards control and influence, you have to understand Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation through that same lens. And you see that everywhere where the Gates Foundation works. They don't just want to be a stakeholder or one seat at the table. They really want to be guiding the conversation and, 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 and moving public policy towards their own, uh, towards their own ideas. In the course of the Me Too movement, we've seen some very powerful titans of industry, CEOs, media leaders, who it's almost as if their own sort of ego, which enabled them to scale the heights to get to the position where they are, also translated in terms of their mistreatment of women. Um, do you see any parallels in terms of Gates's interest in power and the stories that are now coming out about his sort of desire to, I don't know, dominate or have power over women in ways that seem so inappropriate? Um, that's a really interesting question that I haven't thought about. Um, I mean, I guess it's like to be fair to Bill Gates, a lot of what what's come out so far are allegations. To be fair, um, but um, yeah, that that's a really deep question actually um, that I'm going to have to think about. But you well, know, well, I, let me throw this. Let me throw this yeah. another way. I mean, we we talked a few minutes ago about how the media essentially glorified Bill Gates in a way that I think struck a lot of has struck a lot of people as well. That was sort of embarrassing, perhaps, to the media. Is the media now, which likes to sort of kill its young, kill its own? We sort of create people and we tear them down sometimes unfairly. Is the media now being unfair to Bill Gates in that direction because of the accusations and chasing every little sort of scintillating detail that might be out there, even if it's not confirmed? Um, it is interesting that a lot of the recent reporting has been on based on anonymous sources. And yesterday, for example, the, the New York Times came out with a story about the Gates Foundation's money manager. And they said that he had exposed himself to, to somebody, uh, to a female. I think it was somebody who uh, the, the foundation or Bill Gates had an investment in. And they had to retract that because that, that's not what happened. 
Um, apparently, he showed up in a bathrobe or something like that. Um, so a lot of the recent reporting has been based on anonymous sourcings, but a lot of the reporting, it does feel right. Uh, and we'll see in the weeks ahead what's there. But you're absolutely right that we spent years inflating uh, Bill Gates' character, um, just building this fiction and mythology, creating him into a superhero. And now this animus is to tear him down into a kind of super villain. I mean, and that's one thing we've always missed about Bill Gates. It's just is being able to humanize him. Is you know, you know, there was a time where he was a super villain at, at Microsoft, and then there was a time where he was a superhero at um, at the Gates Foundation. And now we'll see where we land. I mean, I, I feel like this is a moment that we shouldn't squander. It's, it's a we can have a real clear-eyed reappraisal of Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, and more broadly about this institution of billionaire philanthropy. Based on your couple of years of covering the Gates Foundation and digging into it, do you have a sense in terms of how the foundation may change or maybe won't change based on the divorce and the split of Bill and Melinda Gates? I don't think you can underestimate Bill Gates. He certainly has a history of digging his heels in and he has kind of unlimited resources. At the same time, he's losing in the court of public opinion, losing badly. I do not see how he can, as these allegations continue to come out, how he can, how the Gates Foundation cannot substantively change in the weeks or months ahead. I mean, a key feature, a key brand of the Gates Foundation is its equity focus, its focus on women. If you go to the website, it's all pictures of women. And how can Bill Gates, you know, in the midst of all these allegations, lead an organization with that brand. In the Wall Street Journal yesterday, the day before Bill and Melinda Gates, there was a story about how they're talking about opening up their board. A very odd and troubling quirk of the Gates Foundation is that it's run by three people, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, and Warren Buffett, the three funders of the foundation. And you look at any organization, institution, company of its size, $50 billion that hasn't diversified its board, that hasn't brought in independent people. It's a really retrograde sort of feature of the Gates Foundation. So there's a lot of reasons why they should, the Gates Foundation should change structurally, institutionally. So absolutely, you're gonna see changes and potentially big changes. And it's strange, it almost feels like it's a $50 billion mom and pop operation yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Since you've been, since you've, you're not only been writing about the Gates Foundation, you're aware of, of, of the media and how the media has been covering him. What are some of the key questions as we wrap this up that you think are worth, if you had an opportunity to ask Bill Gates or some reporter had an opportunity to dig into? What would, what would you want to know about Bill Gates in, in, in the next couple of weeks or months? Um, well, a perennial paradox that I've always wanted to ask the Gates about, that I've tried to ask the Gates about, is how they're actually going to give away their money. Uh, the Gates Foundation's endowment is growing year over year; it's not shrinking. Bill and Melinda Gates' private wealth is growing; it's not shrinking. Um, so, you know, there's all this news about they're plowing their fortune into charity, but I don't see how that's possible with it's constantly growing. So, there's a certain. Yeah. Tim Schwab is a freelance journalist. The latest article with The Nation is Fall of the House of Gates. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate you coming on the conversation. Thanks so much, David. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Across our political spectrum on the left and the right, there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of months about voting and elections in the United States. And here to talk about all of that is Larry Lessig. He's a professor of law at Harvard Law School. He's also the founder of Equal Citizen, which is a nonprofit dedicated to reforms that achieve citizen equality. Larry, thanks for joining us tonight. 
Glad to be here, thanks for having me. So I was struck, there's a new poll out that found something like 62% of American voters, including 43% of Republicans support the For the People Act, which is that suite of anti-corruption and clean election reforms that cleared the House that is now in front of the US Senate. Um, what's your reaction to that? It's hopeful, um, but passing that law is critical. If we don't get that law passed, then the 350 some bills that are now being considered in state legislatures across the country tied to the redistricting that's going to happen after the 2020 census will essentially mean that the Republicans can suppress the votes of Democrats so that they can win control of Congress even if they don't have a majority support in the public. And I think finally the Democratic Party is waking up to this fact and waking up to the recognition that Americans in general are, are very keen to see the democratic process um, reform to end the corruption that so many people perceive as right at the core of the system. And yet, despite the polling, despite a majority of Americans and 43% of Republicans, clearly there are a number of Republicans, most Republicans in Washington, who are gonna do everything they can in the Senate to filibuster to kill this resolution. Is this the bill that you envision Democrats essentially going through the nuclear option to essentially using their bare majority to get rid of the filibuster to pass? Well, until today, I would have thought it was going to be very unlikely that they would be able to pull the nuclear option to pass this bill. But after today, when the Senate filibustered the January 6th commission, I think that finally Joe Manchin is waking up to the fact that the Democratic Party is not facing a party keen to compromise to make government work. They're focused, the Republican Party is a party focused exclusively on how do they preserve the opportunity for them to win in two years. And whether that's hiding really the most extraordinary insurrection in modern history or protecting the states so that they can suppress the votes of Democrats in the states, it doesn't matter to them. Their number one objective is to bend the system to make sure that they can retake control of Congress. I think Joe Manchin, is growing impatient and he is the vote that if he decides to agree with the Democrats that the nuclear option ought to be pulled at least with respect to this question, democratic reform, then I think there's a real chance we'll get this HR1 passed. You mentioned the, the January 6th commission and Republicans killing it. And, and there's a, there are polls out there, a variety of polls that show that most Republicans actually believe that January 6th was carried out either by Democrats or people who wanted to embarrass Donald Trump. And it seems like that is related to the media malfeasance, particularly among conservative media, to feed a bunch of malarkey to the American people. It's interesting that it's so effective in terms of how Republicans view January the 6th, but it hasn't really been that effective in terms of how they view changing our elections. Yeah, I mean, I think the elections point, the corruption that people perceive when they think about Congress is something they've been learning and thinking about for many, many years. I mean, it is the reality that over the past 20 years, many people have been very successful in focusing people's attention on this deep corruption. I mean, Cenk himself has been a champion in getting people to see this. I think the January 6th event is much more indicative of the broken media infrastructure that we have in America today. You know, I think that it's astonishing, really literally astonishing 
that to this day, more than two thirds of Republicans believe the election was stolen and 50% of self-identified Republicans report that there's clear evidence that the election was stolen. Now, the one thing that we know is that there's no clear evidence that the election was stolen. And the only reason they believe this is they live in a media bubble. You know, frankly, like many on our side live in a media bubble, but they live in a media bubble that's telling them a fundamental falsehood and they believe it. They're motivated to believe it. And it raises a genuine question how can we do democracy in a world where the public is divided into these bubbles and they don't even see reality? In the same way, um, and this is just the most extreme example of that that we've seen. And part of that reality is that campaign finance reform, in my view, and I know it's been your view as well, is essential if we're ever going to achieve the sort of true democracy that we're looking for. As a veteran of network news and cable news channels, I've long told people in speeches and lectures, the broadcasters are one of the hurdles here because media broadcasters and now over the internet, make a fortune through unlimited sums of money that is spent in elections. How do you get around just the broadcasters and their opposition to campaign finance reform? Well, the broadcasters need to recognize that the reform that HR1 would bring about is not gonna reduce the amount of spending. It's gonna just change who the funders are. And I think the you know the deep secret or the deep question that Chank and I have debated on this show. Um, is whether the Democratic Party or the leaders in the Democratic Party are really committed to making the change in the way that campaigns are funded. Because you know many in the Democratic Party are perfectly happy to take the large contributions from the lobbyists or the corporate PACs. And are not eager to live in a world where they would be raising money in small contributions only. But I think that if we can build the movement to say to the Democratic Party, you can't count on the Republicans to do the right thing here. And you must pass HR1 for the voting rights, the gerrymandering and changing the way money affects politics. There's a chance, the biggest chance we've had in, in I think 50 years to see something fundamental happen. But we've gotta press them to make it happen because in the next six weeks, it's either gonna work or it's not. And we can make them do it if we just put the pressure on them to get it done. On that question about Democrats, do you sense any change among some of these establishment or corporate Democrats on this issue? Well, you know, frankly, my colleagues in the academy are the ones that I'm most frustrated with because they've been working hard to say we ought to be paring back HR1 and just doing a small chunk of it as opposed to all of it together. I think it's astonishing that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have both committed to passing the whole of HR1 and Joe Biden has said he will sign it. And I think we just have to keep the pressure on to let the leaders do what they say they wanna do. And I think Nancy Pelosi in particular deeply wants to see this legislation in its full reach passed. And and let's just, let's just hold her to that promise and make sure it happens. Yeah, there is some polling when people who support HR1 were asked, do you support comprehensive, a comprehensive overhaul or narrow targeted reform? A majority, clear majority wanted something comprehensive. So they want Congress to, to go big. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago the, the various state laws that are rolling back voting rights for people all across the country. What are some of the most egregious laws or things that are out there that, that, that jump out to you? 
Well, I mean, you know, the most egregious are laws that forbid giving water to people waiting in line to vote. But the more important are laws that are basically restricting the access to the polling places or the opportunity to vote by cutting back on mail in voting, by closing down early voting, by closing down the number of polling places that can happen. And when you look at the effect of those changes, the effect is to suppress Democratic vote. Now, people say it's it's targeted on race, and maybe it is, but I know whether it's race or not, it's certainly targeted on making it harder for Democrats to vote. And so they can't win if everybody can vote. So what they're doing is adopting rules that make it harder for one side to vote so that they can win, even though they don't represent, in this sense, a majority of those people in their states. And for the non-lawyers among us, um, explain, is it possible for there to be some court challenges to these uh, election laws in various states, or are the states given so much legal power that a court challenge doesn't have much of a chance of being successful, even against some of these egregious bills that have been passed? Well, the Supreme Court so far has taken a very hands-off approach to these types of laws. And they've basically given the states free ride. And the only time the Supreme Court has stepped in is when it's struck down rules that are trying to suppress the influence of money. In politics. So the Supreme Court's influence has not been something to be hopeful about. Um, I think the only chance, literally the only chance to avoid this extraordinary perversion in 2022 is if Congress passes HR1 and all of HR1. Um, and that's the fight we've got to keep people focused on and make it happen literally in the next six weeks. You said at the top that you're optimistic. What would bolster your optimism? Would it be a clear statement from Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, or would it be something else that might give you some hope that okay, this actually does have a chance? I think Joe Manchin signaling that this January 6th commission is really extraordinary and, and cause for him to rethink his affection for the filibuster. I think the president standing up and saying, we need all of HR1 passed. Changing the way campaigns are funded, changing gerrymandering, changing the voting suppression that's going on in the South. Those two things, those two things together, I think, would mean that we have a real shot in getting this done. And is it okay if, in order to get this done, Democrats say, you know what, we need to drag this out? We're going to let this go, say, till September, October, before we really force things in the Senate, if that's what it takes. Can't wait that long, because you're not going to be able to affect what happens in 2022 by implementing the changes that HR1 does. It has to happen by the end of August or else it's not gonna matter. Lawrence Lessig, he's a professor of law at the Harvard Law School, also the founder of the Equal Citizens, a nonprofit dedicated to reforms and the idea that we should all be achieving citizen equality. Larry, thanks so much for doing this, I appreciate it. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And on behalf of Larry and Asher Cofield, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching the conversation, everybody. We'll see you next time.